Let's turn together in God's word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7 this morning. <clears throat> and as this is, um, how do I put it, there's so much here, it's so dense, being so early in Scripture, it's so compressed that we'll be looking at this today, and again, Lord willing, um, not this next Sunday, but the one after that. But Genesis 3, 1 through 7, this is God's holy word, so listen to it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The reading of God's word. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to what is being revealed to us here, what is revealed to us here in this portion of your word. Help us not be blind to it, but rather help us see. And help us not close our hearts to what it is telling us, but rather receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here's a somewhat strange admission. I've always liked snakes. As a small child, I was fascinated with them. I thought they were so cool. I watched hours and hours of animal programs about them. I read books about them. I wasn't afraid of them, though I understood that you didn't want to mess around with them, even the non-poisonous ones. 
I like snakes. So I remember being at a summer camp one year. I was maybe nine or ten, I'm not sure. And we had been hiking up in the foothills of the Sierras, and we came to rest for a bit in this one area where there were these really big stones. Under one of those really big stones, there was this crevice between the stone and the ground. Now, some of the other boys on that hike thought that they heard something under there, and so they began to poke around in that crevice with sticks. I went over to see what they were poking at, and as I drew near, I heard the sound that they had heard, a sound that told me that those boys were acting quite foolishly. Apparently, those other boys weren't the snake nerd that I was. So I told them, stop poking around under there and get away from that stone. And surprisingly, they listened, maybe because, you know, I was typically the joker, so when I got serious, they're like, wait, okay. Then I told our camp leader, and this was exactly what I told him, there's a western diamondback rattlesnake under that stone. (laughs) Within a few minutes, he had us back on the trail. There's something quite mesmerizing about snakes. There's a subdued yet intriguing beauty to them. There's this silent, smooth, sinuous, seemingly magical way that they move. Sometimes slowly, very slowly, but then shockingly fast when they want. The patterns on them, on their amazing skin, allows them to blend in perfectly with their environment or to tell you not to mess with them. Their ability to remain perfectly still for hours and hours so that you could be standing right there, right next to one, and not even see it. They adapt so perfectly to their environments, and they are among nature's most efficient and deadly predators. There are some that are so venomous, so deadly, that if a person is bitten by them, they have about two steps before they fall over dead. In fact, there is a snake, I think it's in South America, but it may be one of the islands, that's called by the natives two-step. Because that's all you get. You have to think that the devil saw something in the way of a serpent that seemed perfectly fitting for the approach he wanted to take with mankind. So crafty, so subtle, so intriguing, so seemingly innocuous, doesn't even move until you get too close, and then it's over. The Bible describes the serpent as more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. That word crafty in Hebrew is the word arom. It can mean crafty, 
cunning, shrewd, clever, sly, wily, subtle. But interestingly enough, it can also mean prudent, sensible, even wise. There are uses of that word that describes the serpent in Scripture that carry no negative connotations at all. It's a word that's frequently used, for instance, in the Proverbs. So, for instance, Proverbs 14, 28, the simple inherit folly, but the prudent, that's the word. The mean the prudent ones are crowned with knowledge. Proverbs 14, 15, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. Again, same word. Proverbs 15, 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Same word, but they don't want to use crafty because that carries negative connotations. They use prudent. Now, when used positively like this, this kind of wisdom or prudence or good sense is simply the kind of prudence, the kind of wisdom that works. It works well in contrast to poor sense or foolishness or straight-up boneheadedness, which usually leads to bad outcomes. It's, it can be expressed, as we often use it here in the United States, it's common sense. Just common sense. You've got to think before you do something. You know, you want to look before you leap. It's the kind of wisdom, the kind of common sense or prudence that understands how things operate in this world and so adjusts behavior and behavior patterns accordingly so that success, not shame or failure, is attained. It's the wisdom, in other words, of knowing not to poke sticks at a rattlesnake. It's the common sense of knowing that discipline and hard work reap better dividends in life than procrastination and laziness. It's wisdom that's gained from experience, recognizing what works and what doesn't work, right? Measure twice, cut once. Now, whatever you think about snakes, you have to admit they are fantastic predators. Their built-in craftiness makes them far more successful than many other types of predators. But like snakes, this type of wisdom, this crafty wisdom, Wisdom that's gleaned from the way this world works. Wisdom that produces good results in this world. Like snakes, that kind of wisdom can bite you if you're not careful. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the serpent here is banking on.
You see the serpent, what he does here is he makes an appeal to this worldly type of wisdom. He takes something that in and of itself is not necessarily evil or foolish. Indeed, something that could make a lot of common sense. And he sets it over against the word of God. He says, choose. He seeks to lead mankind into adopting this kind of wisdom as the only true wisdom. He wants mankind to believe that this wisdom and this wisdom alone is true wisdom. I can't see it. I don't believe it. Show me the evidence. For this reason that quite often in Scripture, this word is used as it is here with negative connotations. When this wisdom becomes the only wisdom that you care about, when common sense becomes your only guide, and that's set in over against God's word, it comes with negative connotations in Scripture. That's why it's translated crafty. For instance, Exodus 21.14, the same word is used here. It says, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning. There it is. You shall take him away from my altar that he may die. There's a certain cunning to murderers, isn't there? You watch enough of those shows, you see these people can be crafty. It's hard to kill someone. You have to, you have to think about how you're going to do it. Get sneaky about it and crafty about it. Job 5, 12 and 13 says of the Lord, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. There it is again. And the schemes of the wily, hear how many times it's being used there, are brought to a quick end. Psalm 83.3, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. Now in the New Testament, or in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this kind of wisdom is often translated with the word panurgia, a word that also carries strong negative connotations. It's a word that means literally this person, the one who lives by panurgia, is fit or ready to do anything. For instance, Luke Chapter 20, verses 21 through 25. And again, if you want these passages after the sermon, I'll, I'll be happy to give them to you. Luke 20, 21 through 25. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And what does it say? He perceived their panurgia. He perceived their craftiness 
And he said to them, show me a denarius. You know the rest. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were up to. They're playing the game that their father played in the beginning. Believers are exhorted in the New Testament not to give in to that kind of wisdom. Ephesians 4.14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. 1 Corinthians 3.19 and 20 Paul writes, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul saying, apostles, preachers, we don't rely on cunning, on craftiness when delivering the message of the gospel. We, we, we rely on the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. See, this wisdom, this panergia, this arome carried in with these negative connotations set over against the wisdom of God, that which alone a person lives by in this world. It implies that there will be, if this is your wisdom, if this craftiness is how you live, it's your guide, it implies that there will be no limit to what a person might do, think, say, etc. in order to um, achieve the desired result. This is the way the world works, right? If I'm going to win, I need to do this. If I'm going to succeed... This is my pathway to success. And if you can figure out how it works, how the game's played, you're going to win. You're going to succeed. There becomes no limits to what you will want to do then or what you'll be able to do. It's a wisdom that begins and ends with this world. If the starting point of wisdom is this world. If the starting point of wisdom is man, beginning with, moving through, and ending with man, and with successfulness in this world, according to this world, then the wisest man, by definition, is the most successful man in this world. Attaining for himself the very best that the world can offer, despite the means by which he may have come to attain these things. It's that bumper sticker, the one with the most toys wins. Doesn't matter how he got the toys. He just was craftier than the rest of us. He was tricky. That guy won. And as such, this type of wisdom comes to be associated in the Bible with deception. Luke 16, 8, 
The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. They're good at it. They know how to use the tool of deception, sleight of hand, dishonesty. Now this brings us full circle back to the serpent and to what's going on here in Genesis 3. The serpent is called in scripture the great deceiver. And here you see the nature of his deception. It's not just that he flat out lied. His deception goes deeper. It's far more insidious and subtle than you might have thought. He is tempting Eve to read and contrast God's word, God's commandment, to read it in the light of common sense to read it and contrast it with the wisdom that produces good results in this world in essence he's saying common sense is going to dictate that you disobey god or at least that you put it to the test i mean you want the best outcome right you want the best possible outcome. I, I mean, don't be dumb. Don't be foolish. Be wise. Come on. put At least put God's word to the test. Come on. It's, this is your future you're talking about here. You need to begin with yourself. You need to begin with your needs. You need to think about your desires. You need to think about what's best for you. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that what's permeating the air today? You need to do what's right for you. What's best for you. What are your interests in this world? What do you want to do? What do you want to attain? How do you want to succeed in this world? Maybe that God doesn't have the same interests. Maybe that his commandments can be a hindrance. If you really want to succeed, you want to be successful, you might have to set those aside and do what's best for you. By the standard of the wisdom of the world, the commandment of God seems arbitrary. It seems unjust. It seems impractical, useless, foolish. If one starts with man and with success in this world, then to not eat of a tree that promises knowledge seems absurd. That's what he's saying. Did he really say? Wow. Okay. I want you to be smart. I would think you would want to know, right? If one starts with man and with this world, then to listen to one who is trying to deny you the attainment of your best life now 
One who is telling you to deny yourself. That's just absurd. It's impractical. You, you don't need to listen to that. You do what's best for you. It's about you. It's about this world, right? God's word seems foolish when measured by that standard. The gospel seems foolish to the wise of this world whose wisdom is this standard. Does it work for me? For this world? Living and behaving with the starting point of the fear of the Lord? That's not going to attain. You won't, you won't win the most toys that way. Better results for this world, in this world, could be attained if you make yourself the starting point and look out for what's best for you. In other words, the serpent is crafty. The serpent is incredibly deceitful. Not just openly lying, but by suggesting and embodying what the New Testament will later refer to as the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this world. It's that way that seems right in the eyes of a man, but the end thereof is death. Again, there is much wisdom, much prudent advice about living and about life in this world that you can glean, that you can appreciate, that you can appropriate from around you, from the world. One can benefit from med meditating upon and taking to heart such wisdom wherever it may be found. I mean, you can learn helpful, useful, practical things from observing nature, right? I knew not to poke a snake. The Bible didn't teach me that. I knew I don't poke the snake. You can glean much helpful, practical, wise counsel from your elders, or the traditions, the collected wisdom of those who went before us in this world. Do we need to relearn how to make a wheel or light a fire? Or can we just receive the collected wisdom of the ages? It's useful, right? It's practical. But there's an ever-present danger, ever danger that's bound up with that wisdom. As good or as useful as it may be, in this world, for this world, it's nevertheless bound to this world. And if it becomes your soul standard, your soul guide, it can be set over against and in opposition to the wisdom of God. It is good and useful as far as this world goes. The issue, however, is what is your starting point? 
unless such wisdom submits to the higher wisdom of God, the wisdom that is from above, it's going to lead you to destruction. When worldly wisdom becomes the starting point, rather than God, when man begins and ends with the visible things of this world and what conduces best to life in this world, then you will fall short of the glory of God. How many people spend millions and millions of dollars every year on self-help books, self-help techniques? I mean, it's huge, the market for improving one's person, one's life, one's business, one's relationships in this world. You can have better personal health and fitness, more financial security. You could do better in business, time management, everything. But this is the thing. If this kind of wisdom becomes for you the only thing that matters, the only true wisdom, if practical results for this life and for this world alone become your main objective, then I'm telling you, you've been bit by the serpent. You've bought the lie. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, revealed to you in these last days that wisdom which is from above must be your starting point if you care at all about your soul. If you are interested at all in dividends that accrue for the age to come. What does the Bible say? What did our Lord say? He said, what does it profit a man after all if he should gain the whole world but lose his soul? That guy with the huge warehouses full of stuff and the massive mansions, the world's going to be like, he did it, he made it. The Bible says he's a fool. Because that's all he cared about. What does it profit a man, after all, if he should become successful in this life? But as a covenant breaker, sever himself from the life and glory of his creator. What does it profit him? At the end, what does it profit him? The word of God, the gospel of God, seems foolish to this world. The wise of this world deem religion, true religion, serving God, worshiping God, turning to Christ for salvation. They deem it impractical. They deem it ridiculous. It is nonsense. If you want to live your best life now, you ought to listen to that serpent. If you want to avoid suffering, cross-bearing, dying to self in the service of God, I think you should listen to the serpent. If you want to heap up treasures for yourself in this world, the serpent's got the way. The gospel's foolishness. But people of God, according to God, 
that. The serpent's lie is what real foolishness looks like. You see, God's word will stand. Long after this world is gone, God's word will stand. Christ alone is true wisdom. As Paul proclaims, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25. Now, when we come back to this passage a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to see how things play out. We'll see what happens when Adam and Eve choose common sense, the wisdom of this world, that which works in this life. We'll see what happens. Well, spoiler, that take about two steps. But what about you? What's your starting point? Will you submit to the word of God? The gospel of God in Jesus Christ, that wisdom that is from above? Even if it means you won't always attain the best outcomes here. Others might pass you because you've got different interests and they're going to get ahead of you. Are you going to be truly wise, holding fast to the wisdom of God that's revealed to you in the gospel? That's the question. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord of glory, we, we know that in Christ, all of the treasures of wisdom and understanding are found. In the gospel, we are told that indeed Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God. There was a time, Lord God, when we were living according to the wisdom of this world, the desires of this age. And as scripture says, those who live by that wisdom are quite... Quite good, quite successful. They, they do get ahead, they do advance, they do seem to have all of the advantages. What they are doing works if the outcome is to be successful in this world. And the temptation is ever for us, Lord God, to make this world and success in it the starting point. Oh Lord, help us to live by that wisdom that we have been given in Christ. It may mean, it does mean, denial of self. It may mean, and, and does often mean, that we're going to sacrifice 
things that would have made us more successful in this life in order to do the things that please you and which bears good fruit for the age to come. It might seem to the world very foolish that we would lay up for ourselves not treasures in this world, but treasures in heaven. But Lord God, we would not want to be fools. If we are going to be fools, let us be fools for Christ. Let us be counted as fools for the sake of Christ. Help us to hold fast to him. Help us to take your word and stand upon your word and it be our starting point for everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.